0: will be at the end of Luke chapter 5 today. Healthy people love to eat. Some may eat less often than others, or not as much, or enjoy eating a little bit less than others do. But to a significant degree, eating is a natural pleasure for all of us. In fact, if we don't eat, there's usually some concern that's expressed by someone. You skip a meal or two and somebody says, are you feeling sick? Or are you okay? Something wrong? Like sleep, food is necessary for our well-being and a contributing factor to our joy as human beings. And so it is usually only extenuating circumstances that lead us to set food aside. Maybe we are sick or too emotionally upset to stomach food. We may find ourselves too busy to stop and eat, and so we skip a meal or two that way. On occasion we may fast for health reasons, but seldom in our modern context do we set food aside in the pursuit of God. This was not the way that it was in the day of Jesus. In the ancient world, fasting in devotion to one's deity was commonplace. Devout people could be almost universally expected to fast, to pray to their gods, to sacrifice to their gods. Our last look, you will remember in Luke chapter 5, found Jesus not fasting but feasting feasting luxuriously you will remember at the home of a tax collector who had invited other tax collectors to be with them and other sinners joined in on that meal that's where we've seen Jesus last now not no one fasted all the time in Jesus day but these luxuriant dinners Luxurious dinners in the company of materialistic, excessive, self indulgent sinners was in stark contrast to devout people in Jesus' time. And enough time had passed to conclude that Jesus did not do much fasting at all. Some may have known about his 40-day fast at the start of his public ministry, Luke chapter 4. We looked at that some time ago. But fasting was clearly not a discipline of devotion in Jesus' life. And that bothered a lot of people. Why not? It bothered some so much that they asked Jesus about it. And in typical fashion, he not only answered the question, but he also taught them and taught us through his answer. We find Jesus' question here in Luke chapter 5 and verse 33 along these lines. They said to him, they being the people who are troubled by this fact. Other texts would indicate that some may have been, some were, John the Baptist followers, but at any rate, that contrast is not drawn out here. These are people who are simply looking at John the Baptist and looking at the Pharisees and saying this John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. John's disciples, you notice there are two things, fast and pray. The two go together. These two disciplines are hand and glove in the Scripture. Fasting is never an end in itself. We're not commanded as such to fast in the New Testament. We are commanded to pray, but fasting goes with prayer. It's sort of in the shadows that always walks along with this theme of prayer in the Scriptures. The prayerful pursuit of God can be aided by fasting. And so, they say here, John's disciples often fast and pray. Now what's really on their mind, of course, is fasting, and so they train their guns on that point. And they even go to another example, and that is that the Pharisees go uh, fast, but yours, that is your disciples, go on eating and drinking. let me stop there for a moment let's talk about John's disciples I'm not sure why these disciples of John are not characterized by this point as Jesus followers they're still characterized as John's followers that's an interesting point what it adds to the mystery is the fact that John the Baptist was in prison at this time for some reason whether for good motives or perhaps for less than positive motives they are still John's disciples and are seen as a unique band of followers of John. Now, as people look at John, and they look at his followers, John was an ascetic. You remember he lived on honey and locusts, and probably along with that was a number of seasons of fasting. As a matter of fact, if you think about it long enough, there'd be some days you really probably chose to fast rather than to eat locusts again. John was an ascetic. He lived out in that area in Israel where many people went to fast, and that's where John lived. He was one who fasted. He lived an austere lifestyle, and that characteristic was picked up by his followers, who also fasted and prayed. But it was not only the followers of John the Baptist, this sort of crazy man that lived out in the wilderness, many people thought, but it was also the distinguished Pharisees. Those who wore the fancy robes, who dressed better than everyone else, and were the respected religious leaders of Israel at this time, they fasted as well. The law of Moses only stipulates one fast, that on the Day of Atonement. But following the return from Babylon, the Jews had established four annual fast days. Along with that, of course, the Pharisees, in their veneration for the law, and Jesus will expose much of that veneration as less than ideal, but in their veneration for the law, the Pharisees came up with this idea. Moses went up in that second pass into Mount Sinai to get those second tablets. He went up on a Thursday and he came back down on a Monday. Therefore, we will fast every Thursday and Monday. So if you were a good Pharisee, you would not eat food two days out of the week. That's the context in which we find Jesus feasting with sinners. Devout people in that day fasted. Jesus didn't. Why then, Jesus, don't your disciples fast? Which being interpreted is, why don't you teach your disciples to fast and lead them by example? It's really a fair question, and Jesus tackles it and starts by asking a question of his own. Verse 34, Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? There's much in that. And I'd like to unpack it for a little bit, but the answer, obviously, and we know even from our standpoint and very disconnected from that culture, we know the answer. No, obviously not. There is a time for everything, wrote King Solomon, a season for every activity under the sun. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. And if we applied that classic text to weddings, a wedding is a time to eat and to celebrate. It is not a time to fast. Of course, we all do on that day because we're trying to do so much, we skip a meal probably somewhere. But weddings are not a time to fast. We know the point, it's very obvious. But I think to feel the full force of this, we need to get out of our world and get into Jesus' world for a few moments. A Jewish wedding was very different than our own. And the focus here in verse 34 is upon specifically the guests of the bridegroom, the Greek reading the sons of the wedding room, but as we compare it with other Gospels, it is almost certainly a reference here, not simply to the guests of the wedding, though it would include them, but primarily to the groomsmen, as we would call it. In ancient Israel, the groomsmen were responsible to accompany the groom to the house of the bride. And from there, the groomsmen attended the couple back to the groom's house where the wedding feast was held. And the groomsmen had a very specific responsibility between her house and his house, and that was to have a good time and make sure that everybody else had a good time. This was a a journey on foot where there was much joking and there were games that were played and there was much laughter That took place. In fact, that was the groomsmen's responsibility: was to make this a time of joy and celebration. And when the groomsmen arrived with the groom and the bride at the groom's home, it was their job to infect everyone else with the hilarity of it all, the joy of the occasion. The Jews were and are, of course, far more demonstrable than we are emotionally. In fact, they were very earthy people in a lot of ways. And talk about things, in fact, in Scripture we read about sometimes in Blush. The Jews didn't have a problem with that, and they very much celebrated whatever the issue was. In fact, it was true on the other side, too. You think of a wedding, or a funeral, rather. Get a picture in your head of a funeral here in our culture, in our setting. Depending on the situation, very likely you will hear as you walk into the funeral home, some, maybe some quiet sobbing, perhaps a little bit of light music, if any at all. Very reserved tones and quiet, whispering discussions will be taking place, generally speaking. It's not appropriate for someone to laugh loudly, and it's not generally appropriate for someone to fall down on the ground screaming in tears. We're very subdued in our culture. The, Jews, the Jewish funeral was nothing of the like. What do you see as you come up to a home where someone has died in Israeli culture? You hear from a great distance a wailing and a crying that is intense. In fact, the Jews would hire individuals to cry. They would hire weepers, professional people who could turn on the tears and they would cry and they would mourn to get everybody else into the flow of the tears to express the grief. That was their way. The music was much louder People would display memorabilia with tears running down their faces and wailing. There was the tearing of clothes in some situations and throwing up of dust and people may even put on sackcloth at a funeral in the Jewish context. Now take that emotionally charged scene and transfer it to the wedding and you get a little bit of the picture on the other side of the scale. The wedding was a time to rejoice and to celebrate celebrate, to be very demonstrable. It was even a moral mandate that a wedding was to be a festive occasion. It was a time of dancing and singing and shouting and joy and jokes and games and all of this taking place. If a wedding procession, in fact, passed by you as you were out on the street, even if it was the hour of prayer, when every Jew stopped and prayed, you put all of that aside, everything you were doing aside, and it was your moral obligation to rejoice with the party as they walked by. I've mentioned before the old rabbinic tradition had it that when wicked Queen Jezebel, you remember her? She got eaten by dogs, that gruesome scene in the Old Testament. What did the dogs leave alone? Her feet and her hands, right? They left those uneaten. The Jews came up with this novel story that the reason that they were left alone was because Queen Jezebel had one virtue, And that is that whenever there was a wedding in Israel and she was there on the street, she would stop and dance with her feet and clap with her hands. Now, all of that, of course, is not intended to be taken at face value, but it's it's a point. You have to celebrate in a Jewish wedding. It's a moral obligation. These joyous celebrations, in fact, could last for an entire week. That'd be a problem to most of us if that happened. we get a little nervous if it gets over four hours. But they would would go for the whole week celebrating this great occasion. So weddings in Christ's day were these times of great joy and festivity. And if we get a sense of all of this, we see the unique role of the groomsmen in all of this joy. Now, does that make a little more sense of what Jesus is saying? Can the groomsmen of the bride groom Fast. No way. Now, I'd like to chase just another trail here for a moment, and that is Jesus' unique self-designation as the bridegroom. This tr- terminology is steeped in Old Testament imagery. I don't believe that he's just shooting from the hip and grabbing just any theme. I think that he is speaking very specifically here and uses this idea of being the bridegroom for a reason. If you gathered together a group of Israeli children at the synagogue in Capernaum and you said to them, now think about the Old Testament. Who is the bride in the Old Testament and who is the bridegroom? Even the little Israeli children would not have to think very long and say, well, Israel is the bride and God is our bridegroom. We think of passages such as Isaiah 54, 5, where God says, for your maker, Isaiah writes, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. We think of Ezekiel 16, where God draws that graphic picture of his relationship to Israel. Remember that classic passage where he finds Israel as an exposed baby, laying there, wallowing in its own blood, left to die in a day before abortion, just left to die, laying out there in a garbage heap. And God comes along and sees that baby and takes that baby and takes care of that child and cleans that child up and raises this, young, uh, this baby girl into a young woman. And then as the story goes, God, in His mercy and in His love, takes this one who was completely discarded and marries her. Takes her on as His own wife and raises her uh, to that point and then loves her with the love of a husband for a wife. That's the picture of Israel and God. In fact, in verse 8 of that chapter, the Lord declares, I gave you my oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Hosea 2 uses a similar word picture, casting Israel in this picture as the harlot, the adulterous wife. She is married to God, but then disgraces her covenant with Him, and goes off and runs after other lovers, the pagans, and the pagan deities of her world. In that day, Hosea 2.16 says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, as He speaks of the restoration of Israel from her adulterous relationship. To those who had ears to hear then, Jesus is saying, You want to know why my disciples do not fast? because your bridegroom is here. I'm here. It's time to celebrate. It's time to rejoice. But let's notice carefully one more point here in verse 34, and that is the phrase, while he is with them. Jesus is saying there is nothing evil about fasting. Is that what he says? Fasting's over, never to do it again. It's evil, I don't go that way, I have a different philosophy. That's not what he says. Look at verse 34 again carefully. Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? There's a temporal issue here. There is nothing evil about fasting, but you are right, says Jesus. I do not fast. And the reason is that there's a wedding on right now. It's time to eat and to celebrate. Not to fast. Not now. Verse 35. But the time will come. The time will come. When the bridegroom will be taken from them, who is the them and the bridegroom? The bridegroom is clearly Jesus. I am the bridegroom. The bridegroom will be taken away from them, who is them, the disciples of Christ. In those days they will fast. So the issue is one of timing. Although Jesus did fast for 40 days at the start of His ministry, fasting was inappropriate during the time He was presenting Himself as Israel's bridegroom. But a day was coming when Jesus would be taken away from his people, and then they would fast. In those days. What are those days? We have, it seems to me, only two possible meanings. We need to think of these for a moment. Two possible meanings. The first is this. In the days when Jesus is taken away is the Friday of his crucifixion to the Sunday of his resurrection. His disciples are feasting now, but there would be this narrow window of time when they would fast because he would be taken away prior to his resurrection. The second possibility is that the meaning is much more expansive than that, and it refers to any time that Jesus is not here. In other words, including the time that he was in the grave, but also after his ascension and to this very day. I want to give you three reasons, and this is crucial to the situation and our understanding of this passage, but I would like to give you three reasons why I think this more expansive interpretation is what Jesus has in mind. Three reasons for believing that Jesus meant the time leading up to his second coming. First of all, this is how church history has recorded it, that is early Christians have seen it this way for some time. In contrast to the Pharisees who fasted on Monday and Thursday, the early Christians fasted on Wednesday and Friday. Now that's not in the Bible and it doesn't mean anything and it's just church history, but on the other hand it does say to us there was a large number of Christians who did not take this to mean just the time that Jesus is in the grave. That's when he's gone. Now, that's not all that strong of a support. I think there's much greater support, of course, in the biblical text of the New Testament where we see the early church fasting. Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, you remember there the church at Antioch while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So the church at Antioch is there. Jesus is, for some time now has ascended, is no longer with them, and they're fasting. So they apparently, the Antioch church, the church at Antioch in Acts 13, they did not take this to mean that when Jesus rises from the dead, from that point on, fasting will be inappropriate. Apparently they thought Jesus wasn't with them, and so they were fasting. This new time had come. Also we find in Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Again, the early church is fasting in the context of devotion to God. So the point is, the early church does not believe that Christ's answer here in Luke 5 applied to them. The bridegroom has been taken away, and that leads to my third support, which I believe are texts of Scripture which very clearly refer and emphasize the fact that Jesus is not here. Can we turn to texts of Scripture that indicate that Jesus is here? There are a number of them. He is with us. He indwells us. But there are also texts of Scripture which indicate that Jesus is not here and it is appropriate for us to think of Jesus being absent. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, "...I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body." I want to be away and to be with Christ. In other words, I'm not with Christ now. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. Therefore we are always confident and know as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We could turn the theology a different way, theoretically. We could turn this theology and say that as long as Christ dwells within our hearts, we are with Him. And there's, that's true. On one side of it. But the theology of the New Testament also says there's a sense in which we are not with Christ. To be absent, to be present in the body is to be absent from the Lord. We read it earlier this morning, if you caught that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. And so we will be with the Lord, said Paul, when Christ returns. We will be with the Lord. That's the anticipation of the return of Christ, to be with Him. Revelation 22 and verse 20, He who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We could offer other texts of Scripture to indicate this, but I believe the point is clear. There is a sense in which the New Testament says Jesus is not here. The early church fasted, and Jesus said there would be a time when His people would fast in anticipation of His coming. Now think about this for a moment. God's people fasted in anticipation of the Messiah's first coming. Did they not? Do you remember that? Can you think of that here in the text of Luke? Can you think of a place that we have discussed ourselves where we have seen people fasting? Let's go back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 36. This first reference to fasting here We read, there was also, Luke chapter 2 and verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. It doesn't mean she fasted every day, obviously. She wouldn't make it very long if she was that 84 years of age. But she did characteristically, habitually fast and pray. She was looking for the coming of Messiah. And in like manner, we find ourselves anticipating the return of the Messiah. But this is a different kind of fast, which Jesus now illustrates back in Luke chapter 5. There's a fasting in anticipation of the coming of Messiah, and now there is a new kind of fast that anticipates His return. Notice here the analogies that He draws, the parables, if you like, or the illustrations. Verse 36, He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. As far as understanding, that should be fairly clear. We take a patch from an unshrunk, unwashed piece of garment, and we put it on an old, washed, shrunken garment, and obviously that's going to last as long as you don't wash the garment. Because when you wash the garment, the patch will shrink and will tear at the old garment, and where the seams are, that will be ripped and destroyed. Second illustration, much like it, verse 37, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. Wineskins were made out of, let's say, a lamb. There are other animals, but just usually, typically a lamb. The lamb, and this it's a little gruesome for us, uh, tender feet here in our, in our setting, but they would take a lamb's skin and do just that. they skin the lamb, turn it inside out, and they'd do a process of drying and, and cutting and cleaning. And then they'd sew up the feet holes and sew up the tail hole and use the neck hole as a spout. A fairly large bladder then would be there and the skin is supple. And they put the new wine into that bladder and cork up the top, the neck hole, what was the neck hole, and the wine would ferment and expand. And in the supple skin, it would, of course, have the room to expand and it would work perfectly, not allowing space in there for air, but then as the, as the wine fermented, the bladder would expand. Well, you can imagine with an old bladder that it became hardened and brittle. And if you put new wine and filled it completely full so there's no air in it and cork the top in this old wineskin that's now brittle and no longer supple and cannot expand anymore, as soon as the wine began to ferment, you can imagine what happened. It bursts and it's useless and all the wine in that wineskin is lost. So again, what Jesus is saying as far as understanding the imagery is not difficult to, to see. There's something in the first one where new is put on to old and they don't mix. And in the second one, new is put into old and it doesn't mix. We have now a third idea, and this is more proverbial, verse 39. And we'll get back to what this means in just a minute. But verse 38, I didn't read that. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. That's the obvious conclusion. Verse 39, now for the proverb. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. The fermented wine is tastier than the grape juice. The point here is that what comes later is better than what is at first. All three of these illustrations blend together and, may I say, cause commentators extreme headaches to understand what in the world Jesus is saying. I mean, it's clear what he's talking about, it's not clear what he means, what he's trying to say with these illustrations. Now, it is very common for commentators to try to separate these parables from the context of fasting. I'm not going to do that here. Perhaps I'm misunderstanding Jesus, but I don't see any reason to separate it from the context of fasting. I think he's still talking about the same thing. This isn't some extraneous comment that's thrown in here. And So here's at least how I understand it, and I'll be very open to discussion on this. Now that Jesus has come... Nothing will ever be the same again. And to try to make everything the same is going to be disastrous. You cannot mix new cloth with old cloth. You cannot put new wine into an old wineskin. So it will be impossible to mix the old ways of things with the new way of things now that I have come. And as the old wine tastes better than the new wine, in like manner, no one is going to have a taste anymore for the way things were. There's a new way. It's a new time. I am come. The bridegroom is here. So I think Jesus is saying, now that I'm here, it is inappropriate to fast. As inappropriate, if we want to take the analogy, as putting a new patch of cloth on an old garment or new wine into an old wineskin. This is a new day, says Jesus, a day that will transform everything and take away all taste for the way things used to be. Because I am here, fasting is to be put away. But there is a day coming when I will not be here, and in that day my followers will fast. But it will be a new kind of fast. The old fast was a fast of longing for Messiah to come. But the new fast will be a longing for me to return. And the new fast will be much tastier than the old fast. The old fast looked for this unknown, mysterious, murky Messiah. This suffering, reigning Messiah whom we didn't know. What is the new fast? It's looking for the return of a Savior whom we very much do know. Our beloved Savior. So Christian, there is today this new kind of fast. An abstinence from food to express a longing to see the Jesus we know face to face for all eternity. Now this is really strange to our western ears to hear of such an idea and of such deep devotion to God. And it smacks of asceticism, that is of some idea of I will hurt my body in order to pursue God, in order to somehow make myself right with God. And we've set that aside. We know better than that. There's no way of earning our salvation by hurting ourselves. Well, amen to that. That's obviously not the point here. But I don't think that we should dismiss the passage that easily. Like the Old Testament saint, we too find ourselves longing for Messiah to come. But like the Old Test- unlike the Old Testament saying our longing is based on historical experience. And Jesus has said here that in those days they will fast. Think of it. Jesus was here. We've seen him. As John put it in his first epistle, we have heard him speak. We have seen him with our eyes. We've looked at him. Our hands have touched him. And for those of us living on this side of the cross, this same Jesus has made His home in our hearts. We know Him. We are not like the Old Testament saint looking forward to this murky Messiah who will somehow suffer and reign. We are looking to the Savior whom we know, whose death and resurrection has rescued us and whose glory we have tasted. We would never want to return to that old fast of the pre-Messianic era. Our longing is more intense. Our fasting is more rich. Or is it? Now that Jesus has come and gone, Christian, now that our bridegroom has been taken away, do we fast for His glorious return? Oh, we all fast, don't we? We fast because we've got to have an MRI and we have to go to the doctor and have a physical and so we can't eat. And we fast because we're having too much fun at the mall and we don't stop for lunch. And we fast because we get going on a house project at home on a Saturday and we work right through a couple of meals. And we fast because we forget to bring our lunch to school or to work. We skip breakfast because we oversleep. We all fast from time to time for one reason or another. But do we fast? Do we purposefully, devotedly set aside food out of a longing to see Jesus come again? Do we fast because we want to taste his glories more acutely, to do his will more fervently, or to be formed more radically into his likeness? Perhaps spiritual fasting is such a strange topic to our ears because when it gets right down to it, we really don't miss Jesus all that much. Perhaps we are so unschooled in fasting because we are so unschooled in prayer. If our prayer lives were more vibrant and passionate and focused upon the big themes of biblical prayer, I wonder if we might not experientially realize why the Bible so naturally couples prayer and fasting. Perhaps we're so unschooled in fasting because we are so at ease in this world, so satiated with food, with entertainment, with vacations, with television, with money, with things, that we really have very little thirst for Jesus. Now there's a thousand ways to take this wrongly and to run off in the wrong direction with it, ridden by guilt, or desirous of showing others how much you love God, or some false motive. But I ask you this morning, in light of this, I, I don't know how else to read this passage, and I don't see any way to dismiss it. I believe that Jesus is saying here is that there is a time coming when He will be gone, and the people who are passionate about Him will fast. Fast in devotion to see Him return. Have you ever done that? Has that ever happened in your life? Have you ever fasted in order to enhance prayer? Have you ever fasted with a longing to see Jesus come back? Have you ever fasted with a desire to know the will of God and be formed into the likeness of Christ? Well, there may be a medical reason why you shouldn't do that. And God knows, and that may be one reason why there's no direct command in the New Testament saying that you must fast. But if God is doing a work and He is saying to you through the conviction of the Spirit genuinely, I need to want God more than I do. I need to have a greater longing for Christ to return. I need to want more to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Then I would commend to you that spiritual devotional fasting is legitimate and good if it's done with the right spirit. And I would challenge you along these lines, humbly, with conviction to seek the Lord alone, anonymously, to start simply with no ulterior motives and absolute dependence upon his will and strength, without telling anyone else, sacrifice to your God a breakfast and a lunch. Or maybe a supper. And give him 24 hours as a simple expression to God of your longing for him. Then his hunger pangs overwhelm you, and your stomach starts talking to you and asking you what in the world is going on, and it will, it'll show up. Cling to God. And you will find how very weak and how very small you are. That in that moment, turn to Him and hold on to Him and ask Him for the strength that your body cannot provide this day. And for your mind to work in a way that won't work on its own without food. And to keep under control passions which are very much satiated by food. And cling to God and ask Him to give you the strength that you don't have in your body. Ask Him to work in your heart to look into your soul and into your spirit and seek his face in prayer. Feel the weakness of the flesh and rest in his power made evident in that weakness. Then by his grace, just 24 hours, by his grace, you come and you bend over a plate of food and you experience a very meaningful, prayer of thanksgiving and if no other time in that whole fast God does something in your heart right then as you sense that he has put that food before you and is giving it to you as a gift and then in that moment eat to the glory of God and as you love him as you do love him with all of your heart it's a challenge don't do it selfishly don't do it out of ulterior motives don't do it out of guilt don't do it if you shouldn't medically and don't do it please to lose weight that is a re- that doesn't work and it's just ridiculous sorry if i offended anyone there But do it because you want God. And do it because of what Jesus said when he fasted. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Live for 24 hours on God and his word and see if he does not do a work in your soul. Let's bow for prayer and ask for his strength. Our Father, we ask for this strength, and we ask for the convicting power of the Spirit of God to show us each uniquely what we should do and how you would have us to fast in devotion, that we might pray in devotion, and that we might consider your word and live on it. And feed on it like we don't when we're so satiated by the things of this world. And God, let me stop in prayer and thank you with all of my heart for food. Food is good. And we thank you for it and we rejoice with the privilege that we have to eat. But God, may we never grab a hold of any of your joys and cling to them idolatrously whatever it is, food or anything else. Lord, I pray that you will build this devotion within us as a church and in our experience to seek you, to seek your face by setting aside food that we might find our frailty and your strength. And that we might say with a simple fast that we long for Jesus to come again. We long to be delivered from this world where we have to have food and where our bodies are so weak. And we long to be in the environment where we draw our life and our strength from your glorious presence. Hasten that day, we pray. And until then, Lord, strengthen us to fulfill your will. I pray that you will help us to navigate these difficult shoals, as they certainly are when it comes to fasting. But I pray that you will nurture this within us. There may be some that are here today that know not Christ as Savior, and for them perhaps this is absolutely unfathomable. And I pray God that you will show them that there is a joy in you that is greater than food and is greater than sleep, and is greater than the things of this world, in fact, is worth laying down one's life for. I pray that you will show them, Lord, that that's who you are. That they would not come to you as those who are willing to fast, but that they would come to you as those in abject spiritual poverty who desperately need you and throw themselves upon you for saving grace. Do that work, I pray, within our assembly as you see fit here this morning. And we will thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.